BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome into episode 22 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here as always with Chris Whittingham. As I said, there's been 22 episodes now, so you can find all of the other episodes in our library. Make sure to subscribe, whether you're an Apple person on iTunes or an Android person. You can get it on Stitcher. We are also on Google Play, and we'll be taping a couple more episodes this week, including one with Chris Perkins that has a Dolphins focus. But we wanted to switch to the heat today because we haven't talked about the heat on the pod in a little bit. And we haven't reflected yet on what Dwayne Wade has meant since he's come back to the team. So for that, we're going to bring in Manny Navarro from the Miami Herald. He is with the Miami Heat on a day-to-day basis. He's actually with the team as we tape this in Portland. Manny, thanks for getting up early and doing this with us. Well, happy to uh, be with you guys again. We had a lot of fun uh, before when you guys were were together on the radio, so I'm more than happy to be back uh, as a guest with you guys. All right, and the team you cover has gotten a lot more interesting lately since Dwayne's come back. Yeah, you know, before we get to the five points of kind of what Dwayne's effect has meant on other people in the franchise, I wanted to make a couple of points here first. I, I think more so than anything he's done on the court, we've seen his effect really come through in two different areas. One is obviously the financial aspect for the Miami Heat, the merchandising, the interest in the team that has shot way up as expected. But I think the other thing that maybe wasn't as expected was the effect he would have on the community, which we saw recently. Um, And I know you covered this, Manny, with the shooting in Parkland. And it strikes me that Dwayne Wade is the only athlete in South Florida who could have had the kind of impact that he's already had in terms of bringing awareness to that situation, making the students feel better, the visit that he made up there to Stoneman Douglas, surprising them. There's no other athlete in South Florida that would have gotten that reaction at that school. And then additionally, what he's done in terms of the art display uh, last weekend, the tribute to Joaquin, the child that was buried in Dwayne's jersey, and, and also everything that he's doing in terms of promoting the march. So Dwayne has already had an enormous effect off the court in terms of being back, Manny, can you speak to that a little bit before we get into to some of the elements on the court? 
Yeah, I mean, I think Dwayne has kind of, in, in his older age, become a little bit more spiritual by the day. And, and I think, you know, in, in some ways, he looks at this trade and his return six days before the shooting in Douglas is almost as if it was, I don't know, created by God, you know, sort of some, there was a need for him to come back to South Florida, be here to help the community through this. And Dwayne really feels a, a connection, uh, obviously, to Joaquin and, and to the Miami Stone students. Look, he's, he's a guy who's had his life affected by gun violence. He lost his cousin who, sh- who shot uh, while he was playing for the Bulls last season in Chicago. And, and uh, he's had other family members affected by gun violence. So this story hit home with him. He's a father. He's, his boys are, are teenagers now in, in, in high school. And, and so uh, he obviously feels like this was meant for him to come back and help his community heal. And, you know, he's been a part of it from the get-go. I mean, he, he made sure to reach out to uh, Joaquin's parents. He made those special shoes, you know, presented them with them to the family at the game that they uh, that he invited them to. He had his mom go out and talk to Joaquin's parents. And um, he feels like he has to be a part of this healing process. So without a doubt, um, it, it, this has sort of been a quick reminder to Dwayne that, look, you, you mean a lot to this community. And when you left, a lot of people were hurt. And now that you're back, there's a lot of people that are happy. And, and, it's, and it's just crazy that, it, that it's all sort of happened so quickly in, in a span of five to six weeks here since the trade that uh, you, know, you have this terrible tragedy and, and Dwayne Wade sort of at the center of, of helping the healing process. It's, it's kind of a beautiful, beautiful South Florida story. Yeah, I think that's true, Manny. And, and you know, he was never um, the type of athlete who would say after a great performance, you know, immediately credit God. That's never been him. But I do think that uh, we've seen over time as he's gone through things in his life, even his mother's transformation, you know, from somebody who who couldn't care for him when he was young to someone who ends up being, you know, a, a preacher um, and being in the church. So so we've seen Dwayne sort of embrace that over the years. And, and he's talked a lot or talked a lot, you know, sort of the last before he left for Chicago about, you know, sort of living for particular moments now with the team and on the court, that that's what mattered. And, and I think what we've seen is it's it's transcended the basketball part of it now, where as you know, as you talk about this idea of, you know, what happened in Parkland and Dwayne coming back at around that time. And, and I go to this, you know, again, I, there's no other athlete in South Florida that would have had that kind of impact, um, no matter how they tried. I mean, there's nobody else who would have gotten that kind of reaction you know, and, and nothing against Ryan Tannehill, but he's the most visible face of the Dolphins, I guess, because he's the quarterback. It would not have gotten that kind of reaction right. in Parkland. The Panthers did a lot of great things for the students of Parkland, but it hasn't gotten that kind of attention. It, it's just, it's Dwayne. I mean, it's the impact that he has on this community and has had on this community and the way that, that people react to him. And I think that's made it special. So we wanted to sort of cover that before we get to the basketball part of it. But let's get to the basketball part of it, guys, because obviously that matters. And since Dwayne Wade has come back, the Heat have gone 7-5. and five. He's not going to play, as we record this, he's not going to play tonight in Portland, may miss additional time because hamstring injuries can be tricky. So we thought it would be a good time to kind of evaluate what he's meant on the court. The single biggest thing that, that I get out of it from his play is that I did not anticipate Manny when he came to Miami, particularly in a lower minute role as he's in right now compared to what he was in the last time that he was in Miami and coming off the bench that his shot totals would go up the way that they've gone up, that the heat would sort of revert right back to relying on him to create so much offense. I think if you look at some of his other numbers, they're pretty similar to what he was producing in Cleveland, but the shot totals per 36 minutes, if you want to extrapolate it, are way up. Did you anticipate he would have this kind of role? 
knowing the injury to Deion Waiters and sort of seeing this team in the middle of the season, how it was sort of living and dying by, by Wayne Ellington three-pointers in the fourth quarter, you knew there was a need for somebody who could create their own shot in the fourth quarter. And that's something that Dwayne can still do. And to me, when you crunch all the numbers together, and, and like you last night, I, I spent a lot of time here in the hotel room going over, you know, sort of before Wade, after Wade type numbers, you really look at it, it's the fourth quarter. He's got double, he's got 54 shots, twice as more as anybody else on the roster in the fourth quarter since his return. Josh Richardson is next on that list at 27. And that, and to me, that's sort of the stat that jumps off the page. Not just the fact that he's second on the team in field goal attempts per game, but the fact that in the fourth quarter in particular with games on the line, Eric Spolster has basically handed the keys to Dwayne and said, you were the guy... And, and I think in a lot of ways, his teammates have as well. They're, they're deferring to him a lot. And I know some fans look at it, you know, from the perspective of, is that a good thing? He's 36 years old. Should should Josh Richardson be taking more shots in the fourth quarter? Should Goran Dragic be taking shots in the fourth quarter? The thing is, Dwayne has been effective thus far. So it's worked out for the Heat. But you're right. I, I am surprised that it is as much as far as volume of shots that Dwayne has been taking, particularly in the fourth quarter. The fact that the team just sort of, handed the reins to him this easily I think it sort of speaks more to the fact that maybe they're just not enough alpha males on this team guys who sort of would bristle at the fact that Dwayne could come in so easily and and take on this sort of fourth quarter hero role yeah and I do think by the way that we are dealing in fairly small sample sizes right and I know that's probably a thing that you know a lot of listeners don't like because you like to kind of make rash judgments off of what you're seeing straight away but since he's been here, they've played in eight home games versus four road games. They have yet to win on the road since Dwayne Wade has come into the team. They're 0-4 on the road, and you know, without him tonight, we'll see how it looks in Portland. But to me, the thing that I take away from it is that while there were times where the Heat struggled in fourth quarters and they, and they were struggling in close games, there were also times this year that they were really good in close games. And Manny, your colleague Andre Fernandez are in a ton about this, how often the Heat are playing in close games by virtue of the fact that they're not demonstrably better or worse than just about anybody in the league. And so they were kind of around where you would expect a team to be in close games. I think they're around like 23 and 19 around the time that Wade came in. And so... They were, you know, struggling of late, but generally surviving pretty well over the course of a pretty representative sample. And I heard Kevin Arnovitz uh, talk about a similar concept when it came to the Washington Wizards without John Wall. Because we've seen a lot of uh, we've seen a lot of analysis of Washington since they've lost John Wall, and there has been some talk. Well, it kind of looks cleaner, and it doesn't seem like they rely on him so much. And I think the same kind of happened with the Heat, where Dwayne Wade leaves, and everyone you know looks around and goes, "Well, who are the Heat going to turn to at the end of games?" And then it took them a while to figure it out. It took them half a season to figure it out. Then they go on a, a pretty good run over the course of the first half of this year. They've been a 500 team, and so. It hasn't really been as big of a problem as we think. Yes, there are times where it's looked really ugly at the end of games, but for the most part, they've been able to get by without having the prototypical closer. They've been you know, an above 500 team in their time without Dwayne Wade since he's left, and so it would lead you to believe that perhaps this wasn't a big of a problem, and the fact that they're sort of relaxing on it now and kind of going back to the way that they used to be, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bad thing because we haven't seen bad results yet, but it does indicate that they just sort of have this mentality shift when Dwayne comes into the team and that when he leaves the team, it becomes a group effort rather than an individual one. 
Before we get into how he's affected some specific guys, we're going to go down the entire list and how it affects the playoff picture. I wanted to get into his game just a little bit, because as you mentioned, he still counted on to do a lot of these things in the fourth quarter. And having covered the 2015-16 season with you, which is the last time that Dwayne was in Miami, it's interesting to me when you look at his per 36-minute numbers right now, they are virtually identical to his last season in Miami, he's averaging 8.6 field goals per 36 minutes. That is exactly what he averaged his last season in Miami. He's shooting a little lower percentage, 43.6 as opposed to 45.6. But it's virtually the same. In fact, his percentage would be higher, but he's jacking up more threes with Miami right. than he right. ever did before. I mean, that, that's the big difference. I mean, he, he averaged less than a three a game in his last season with Miami uh, in terms of attempts. And now he's averaging 3.6 attempts, uh, which is only making 22%. So if you clean that out. He's actually shooting about the same percentage from two. In fact, a little bit better than he did his last season in Miami. And his last season in Miami, he averaged 22.5 points per 36 minutes. Now he's averaging 21.6 points per 36 minutes. And actually, his rebounding is up. And I know, again, a small sample size. Assists are down a little bit, but some of his other numbers are up. So I guess the question for you, Manny, is having seen him for a full season along with me you know, two years ago, is there anything that he could do two seasons ago or going back to, I'm sorry, you know, to 2015, 16 that you see that he can't do now, or is he virtually, he looks to me like pretty much the same player that he was then. Yeah, I think defensively and, and look, we look at that side of back when Dwayne was younger, we looked at him as one of the best defenders in the league, right? I mean, he was athletic enough to, to be one of the guys who could, who could really put his imprint on that side of the basketball. I think there are times when he looks a half step slow on the defensive end. There are times when he goes up to block a shot where he doesn't get off the ground as high as he used to. And we've obviously seen that with Udonis Haslam over the years, right? The older these guys get, it feels like gravity just figures out how to pull them down a little bit better. And, and so I think athletically, I think Dwayne has lost a little bit, and you see it on that end more than you do on the offensive end. But you're right. I think for the most part, I think he is still very much the same type of player, at least on the offensive end, that he was a couple of years ago. And he's still hitting you know, the 19, 20-foot jumper. Uh, he's still getting to the rim every now and then and, and, and hitting a nice you know layup in, in traffic. He's getting to the free throw line and, and hitting free throws. I mean, to me, he is a guy that just still knows how to score and get a shot up. And that's something that this team badly needed. And, 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 I, and I think just to me, the one thing is the defensive. I don't see the burst on that end. And, and, and anyway, I mean, you and I saw it the last season he was here. He really wasn't focused on that end as much as he used to be. All right, let's get to the second part that we wanted to discuss related to Dwayne Wade and how he's affecting various people with the organization. And we wanted to cover Eric Spolster here a little bit. And I, I heard a quote from him the other day that I remember Manny him giving me two years ago. And Chris and I have talked about this on the podcast. Eric likes this quote, which is, uh, I'll go to my grave with Dwayne Wade taking the shot at the end of the game. And so the, the comfort level, I mean, anytime that anybody has ever questioned Spolster about Dwayne, that comfort level has come through in terms of who he trusts in those situations. And we've seen it with the fourth quarter numbers that you're talking about. What's interesting to me now is you're bringing Dwayne back to a team that's very different from the team that he left, right? I mean, the, the team that he left, the big question was, how was he going to pair with Dragic in the backcourt? And that was kind of an ongoing thing the entire year. How was that going to work? It finally started to work close to the playoffs. And then even when Chris Bosh was out, you had kind of a set front court there when you bring Joe Johnson in and Luol Deng and, and Hassan Whiteside there. Now this is a much different team where Eric has to juggle as many as 12 different players we're looking at who are rotation quality players. How have you sort of 
observed Spolstra since Wade has come back? Do you think he's put too much on Dwayne? And, and how do you see him inter- continuing to integrate Dwayne with what is a very collective team the rest of the way? Well, I mean, obviously the biggest difference is Dwayne. Dwayne's obviously not a starter anymore. And, and that's something that, you know, his entire career with the Hidu, he was in the starting lineup. He's accepted, uh, obviously, that six-man type of role. You know, being a guy who is, in particular, has the ball in his hands a whole lot with the second unit. I was looking at touch numbers. Dwayne is actually second on the team, tied with Josh Richardson for the second most touches per game uh, behind Goron, who is significantly more than anybody else. Goron's averaging 77 touches per game. Dwayne and, and Josh are both averaging about 52. So really, I mean, to me, it, it's sort of being the leader of that second unit and a guy who every now and then gets sprinkled in with the starters. But really, when you look at where he's being most effective, it, it, it's handling the ball, creating offense for himself and others in that second unit. And I think that's just Eric feeling that with this team, that's sort of what was needed. You know, when Goron's on the court with the first unit, there's a guy who can who can create shots for himself and, and create shots for his teammate um, and, and really get the offense going. He's the Heat's best scorer. He's, he's the guy who really runs the ship with the first unit. There really wasn't that guy on the second unit. And part of that has been injuries. You know, having Dion out, you had to put Tyler Johnson into the starting lineup. Then you've had moments where Wayne Ellington has had to sort of creep in with the with the starting unit. And so to me, now all of a sudden with Dwayne, you've got a guy now who you feel comfortable putting the ball in his hands. You t- sort of take it out of James Johnson's hands. James Johnson's turnovers have gone significantly down his touches. I think he's got 10 fewer touches per game now since Dwayne has come over. I think when you just look at the rotations and the way Eric is sort of employing him, it, it's to be the caretaker, the ball handler for that second unit. And I think, you know, to get bring it back to Spolster here a little bit, I, I think that's the, the trick for Eric here down the stretch of this season is it's pretty clear Dwayne's going to be on the floor at the end of games, that Dragic is going to be on the floor at the end of games. And we can, we're going to look a little deeper at the numbers with Dwayne and Dragic together. It's pretty clear Josh Richardson's going to be on the floor at the end of games. But what Eric has to sort of figure out is who are going to be the other two guys, uh, you know, because if you look lately, uh, Olenek's numbers have been terrific when he's been healthy. So is it him? Is it Whiteside? Are there some situations where it's Bam? Who's going to be at the four? Is you going to go smaller with Winslow? Do you play James Johnson, which a lot of the numbers lately suggest that maybe you shouldn't? And these are all combinations that I, I don't know that Spolster has a handle yet on what's going to be his best combination on a given night. And I think a lot of that just has to do with the nature of this team. All right, let's get to the third part that we wanted to get to here is Dwayne Wade's effect on the heat and its various components as he's come back. And that's the young guys. And there's, there's two guys in particular, I, I think to focus on here because these were kind of Dwayne Wade's rookies in the year 2005, 2000, uh, 2015, 2016, you know, when they were rook one and rook two, which was justice Winslow and Josh Richardson. And what's interesting to me, Manny, about these last 12 games, and I don't know if this was going to happen on its own or if Dwayne's had some effect on this, but you've had Winslow trending in a very positive direction, and you've had Josh Richardson, who had been the better of the two players this year, trending in a negative direction. And and again, you look at their best two-man combination since Wade has come back. And Winslow is part of a lot of them. Winslow and Dragic is actually their best two-man combination, plus 77. Tyler Johnson and Winslow plus 65, you know, Winslow analytic plus 62. I, I know there's noise in the numbers because it's a small sample size and the Heat had a big blowout win the other day, which skewed it. But even if you look at just Dwayne's numbers, the one guy that he's got a real positive with so far since he's come back is Winslow. They're, they're plus t- 34 together, whereas Wade and Josh Richardson have played 156 minutes together and they're a minus 11. And I, I just wonder, Manny, are, are you – 
do you separate these things and say, okay, just you know, it was time for justice to start improving, or do you think that that Wade's impact has actually been very positive on him? And and, and then what does it say about what's happened with Josh Richardson? Yeah, I think part of this you, you could measure with analytics, and I think part of it you can. I think part of it is just sort of the mental aspect of the game. I think having Dwayne around has really helped Justice sort of feel confident again. you got to remember, it's been a really rough time for Justice since Dwayne left. I mean, you have the shoulder injury. You only played 18 games last season. You come back, and you're basically sitting on the bench for the most part. I mean, you're, you're not playing a whole lot. You get injured again. You hurt the knee. Now you come back, and, and, and you're, you're playing terribly. And all of a sudden, Dwayne Wade comes to town, and, and your numbers start to go up. And that's what's happened with Justice, where to me, I think it's more of a confidence boost. It's Dwayne sort of being in his ear saying, look, man, you were, you were the 10th overall pick. You've got skills. You've got ability. Just have confidence in it and be aggressive. And I think that is the effect of Dwayne. I think you can sit here and say, okay, his net rating, their net rating together on the floor is, is you know, I think plus 14.4 in the 119 minutes they played together. But I think part of it is just Dwayne making justice feel like he's capable of being a better player. And then from, from Josh Richardson's perspective, I think that is more of conflict of, of position. I think in a lot of ways, Richardson sort of replaced Dwayne's role on this team as far as being a ball handler and a guy who creates offense for others. And I think right now uh, he's getting fewer touches per game with Dwayne around. He's sort of often on the wing uh, waiting to take three-point shots and, and then cutting to the basket every now and then because the ball is in Dwayne's hands a lot when they're on the floor together. So I think from that perspective, it's more of you can measure it from metrics. In the end, are, are both of these guys better or worse? You can make an argument either way. I think having Dwayne around is a po- it will, in the end, have a positive impact for both of these guys. Both of them, look, when Dwayne left, Josh was still very close to Dwayne. There were a lot of conversations they would have via text, over the phone. Dwayne, Dwayne and him sort of maintained this relationship, and, and Dwayne was watching him from afar and sort of, I wouldn't say coaching him up, but at the very least, you know, giving him words of encouragement. And now to have him back at part of, you know, the picture here in year number three for Josh, even if the metrics don't agree with it, I, I feel like it's going to have a positive effect for Josh Richardson. Just seeing the way that Dwayne carries himself, the way he sort of steps into that leadership role in the fourth quarter, a guy who has the confidence to take the tough shot. Josh has done that at times, and then other times I feel like he... This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Miami Heat. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. He's deferred and he's, he's looked to pass the ball to somebody else. Maybe having Dwayne around for the end of this season and, and in a playoff run can sort of show him, look, if you really want to be the man, this is the type of player you need to be. I think that from Richardson's point of view, I don't know if there's a way to spin it as a positive. I think Richardson was really starting to grow into a pretty significant role on the team in terms of ball handling, in terms of playmaking, in terms of where players would turn to. And if you kind of said around the league, who is the player out of the, you know, the ones at the Heat right now that you feel like most feels like a foundational piece the answer six, seven weeks ago would have been Josh Richardson just based off of what he was doing. And I think now it doesn't really look like that anymore. But on the flip side, it does seem like Justice Winslow is now someone who can perhaps be looked at that way. I think what's happened since Wade has come in has been the best thing to happen to his trade value. Because I think what, <laughs> what, what, what it's been is Justice Winslow, I think, needs to be playing on a team with veterans who have won, right? So to me, he would be perfect for a team like San Antonio. Uh, to me, if, if San Antonio came with a good trade offer this summer, I think that he would have to consider it because I think it would be perfect for both parties because I think the Heat right now are not in a stage where they're going to be bringing in or have players who have been part of significant winning. And I think Justice Winslow, you just see him thrive more with veteran players, players who kind of have that deeper understanding of the game. And I think he helps winning teams win more more than he helps okay teams win. And I think that's the, the Heat are more the latter than the former. And so I think he needs to be paired with more of these kind of veteran players around the league. And I think that would probably help Miami in terms of saying to contender, hey, here's a cheap option. He's got one year left on his deal, but you have the rights to kind of lock him up for the future. And I think that's probably what this has been more than necessarily saying he's going to be an important piece to lead the Miami Heat as a number one or number two kind of offensive player. Yeah, I think to add to that, I think it shows how we evaluate the two players and how that's changed since they were drafted. Because when when they were drafted, you thought of Justice Winslow as a foundational piece and maybe, and even he said it, he wanted to be the face of the franchise, whereas Josh Richardson was kind of a nice second round find. That's now changed where I, I think when you look at those two players, I, I do think you evaluate Winslow in more of a more of a Shane Battier context, maybe. And I think that's sort of what you're getting at a little bit there, Chris, is is the idea of he's he's a piece who helps a good team more than he helps a team that is trying to become good. And I agree with you on that. Whereas I think what we saw from Josh Richardson a little bit more, especially this year, is that maybe he's a guy who can be one of your two go to guys down the stretch of a game. 
And so I do think that maybe he's taken a little bit of a step back with Dwayne coming back. Now, I, I can see what you're saying, Manny, where maybe long term, this is good for Josh to get another taste of preparing alongside not just physically, but also mentally, someone like Dwayne, who's been through so much, you know, over the course of 15 seasons. But I think for right now, what we have seen is is Josh step back just a little bit, even though I think the two plays that people think about the most with Dwayne's return were Wade Richardson collaborations on dunks um, that we've seen so far. But I think it, as far as the overall play, maybe he's taken a little bit of a step back. The other The other guy that's interesting here is that Tyler Johnson's numbers have been better since Dwayne's come back. And even with Dwayne off the floor, Tyler Johnson's numbers have been better. So maybe again, Mandy, that speaks to kind of this confidence of having someone like Dwayne around, but, or maybe it's just, and again, you're around the team every day. Maybe it's just Tyler getting healthier now. I, I'm not sure which it is, but, but, it, but it seems like Tyler's played a lot better too. And the numbers speak to it. All right, let's transition to the veteran guys on this fourth part that we want to get to on the podcast on the effect that Dwayne's had on them since he's returned. And I, I want to focus primarily on two guys here, uh, Manny, which is Dragic and Whiteside. Because, look, James Johnson's numbers are terrible with everybody lately. So it, it's I, I don't know what to make of, of his numbers with Dwayne, other than something that you mentioned that maybe the ball's in, in James's hands a lot less now that Dwayne has come back. And we did see James have you know one of his better games the other night. So maybe there'll be a little bit of progress there. But the other two guys, Hassan and Dragic, starting here with, with Hassan, um, you mentioned it's 67 minutes so far. There are minus... 16 together they haven't played together as much as i think people expected because again Dwayne's coming off the bench and hassan's not playing as many minutes as he used to play so they're just not crossing paths as much in fact wade's played more minutes with bam i mean he's played almost yeah. twice as many minutes with bam that he's played with hassan with pretty similar results they're they're minus 13 together i guess one of the hopes when Dwayne came back was that hassan's touches were going to go up you've seen that a little bit you mentioned that but also his general effectiveness would go up because Dwayne has the ability to get the ball to him in spots that he wants to get the ball what have you seen from from their chemistry so far well i mean it, it's been sort of really dependent on on hassan and whether or not hassan is engaged which it feels like that's the the overriding topic since hassan has been here right is he engaged i think there's been nights where I've seen Hassan really active because he's getting the ball in the paint, whether it's Dwayne or somebody else getting the ball to him where he wants it. And then I've seen the nights where, uh, you know, Eric Spolster's is ready to wring his neck. And so I think in particular, as you mentioned, Dwayne can get the ball to Hassan in spots that maybe other guys can't. And if you go back and you look at the 2015-16 season, the guy who was feeding Hassan the most assists was Dwayne. It was Dwayne was setting him up for those lobs, those dunks, and that's really what I think Hassan was hoping for. In general, the Heat has trended in terms of giving Hassan the ball more since Dwayne has got here, but they haven't played a whole lot of minutes together. It's, it's not like we've seen the lobs every single night. We've seen it sort of in, in spots here and there where, where all of a sudden Hassan's going up for a dunk or in position for an easy basket because Dwayne penetrated and was able to get on the ball. So I, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see here uh, in the playoffs how effective this sort of combination is moving forward. But I think as far as you know, Dwayne and his effect on, on Hassan, I think in spots he can help make Hassan a better player. And I think it, more than anything, he makes Hassan feel confident. 
I don't know. I don't think uh, Dwayne Wade always demonstrates the best of habits in terms of particularly, you know, obviously he's been criticized for not running back on defense for a decade. So uh, that, that th- those those kinds of things often come up. But I do think that sometimes we don't talk about the positive habits that I think he can demonstrate. You mentioned earlier about the idea of Wade potentially showing Richardson, you know, this is how you become a closer in the NBA and, and kind of talk about that fourth quarter element. I think one of the things you've seen since he's come into the team, and, and it started from the first game that he came in that Friday night uh, I was it against Memphis I, I I forget the specific opponent Milwaukee Milwaukee I'm sorry there was that immediate willingness to go and find to go and find Hassan Whiteside in the lob game and trying to keep him engaged and I think you've started to see a bit more of those cues being taken and in terms of all right we have to go and find Hassan we have to go and get him his touches and I do think that kind of example has kind of spread through the team because I think Wade, by virtue of just being a 13-year NBA veteran, by virtue of, you know, I'm sorry, 15-year NBA veteran, by virtue of him being in the league for so long, I think knows how to play with specific kinds of players. And I think there's just no substitute for that experience. And I think him being that experience and being able to kind of show it via his play, not necessarily talk about it, I think sort of allows these other NBA players that are a bit younger in the league, don't have that same kind of experience to be like, oh, okay, that's how we play with Hassan. That's how we keep him engaged. And I do think there are those kind of crafty elements that a 15-year vet would know that a young player wouldn't that I think you've started to see more and more of since Wade's come in. And I think that's been a question, too, with Dragic and, and Whiteside and their connection. Agreed. And that at, at times we've seen Goran get away from Hassan a little bit and sometimes frustration about the way that Hassan may set a screen. I mean, that's come up many, many times over the past three years. And, and again, that, that's, you know, I, I think having Dwayne with him makes Hassan feel more comfortable, as Manny said. But again, small sample size so far, only 67 minutes in 12 games. So and again, part of that is is Hassan's minutes going down. Part of that is Dwayne coming off the bench. Now, I want to go to Chris first on this, because we talked about this ad nauseum two years ago on the radio show was the connection between Wade and Dragic and the issue of the ball being in Dwayne's hands so much and Dragic kind of retreating to the corner not being as involved not being as aggressive and particularly late in games where he just wasn't active at all now so far they played 80 minutes together a lot of those are clutch minutes because that's when Dwayne is on the floor with Goran and they're a minus five together I haven't noticed quite as many glitches as I did a couple of years ago where, again, it looked like you didn't know who was supposed to be handling the ball. But because these are the guys that are going to be making the decisions together on the court, I mean, this may not be the starting backcourt, but it is the closing backcourt. How do you think this thing comes together over the over the rest of the season? I do think that... Eric Spolster's done a good job of keeping them separate enough in terms of not really forcing them to be together all the time and not really forcing them to even have this conundrum of who plays and when. If you look at, in terms of the uh, the guys that Dwayne Wade plays a lot of minutes with, you don't see Goran Dragic that far up in terms of minutes played. So I do think they keep them apart. And in terms of them, yeah, they played 80 minutes together. It's been, you know, around a net even, you know, 80 minutes over 11 games. They're basically playing around eight minutes, seven minutes a game with each other. That's not really that much. So it's not this, it's not quite the same as them starting together, but you're just not going to get around the fact that when one has the ball, the other doesn't. And Wade does a little bit more off the ball, but not being a spot-up shooter is always going to be difficult for Goran Dragic to play with. So I, I do think that in terms of them as a combination, you're just not going to see it that often. And so I don't think it's that big of an issue. And to pick up with Chris's comments there, I, I think just because to me where you see it is the fourth quarter. That's that's the few minutes that they're really together. 
and as I mentioned earlier, I mean, Dwayne is still, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big lead over everybody else on the roster in terms of fourth quarter shots. And, and so I think what you lose at times for Goran is, is maybe his aggressiveness. You know, the Goran who has the ball in his hands and, and just goes and attacks the basket. When he's standing out in the corner, that's a lot harder for him to do. And maybe the Heat is losing something with him and Dwayne on the floor together in those moments because you'd like to have probably both of those elements. And I don't know if it's because Goran is deferring and saying, okay, this is Dwayne's time, he's the fourth quarter guy, or if it's just because Dwayne's unwilling to sort of relent and, and wants the ball in his, in his hands in those moments. That's something that, you know, I, I've talked to Goran about it a little bit a couple of weeks ago, saying, you know, are you surprised at all that, that Dwayne has taken over? And he says, look, this guy is a 12-time All-Star, you know, three-time champion. And so I think naturally Goran just sort of feels like he has to, to, to defer to Dwayne in the fourth quarter and in those crunch time minutes. And I think he's okay with it. We'll see what happens when this team gets to the playoffs, if, if Goran is still going to feel that way. Because in a lot of ways, as soon as Dwayne left his team, the Heat became Goran's team. And, and, you know, I know Hassan signed the big contract and was given all that money, but I feel like in a lot of ways, everybody on this roster sort of looked to Goran as the leader. And in the fourth quarter, while guys were sort of sharing that, that role with Dion Waiters and other guys while Dion was out, I still felt like this was Goran's team. I don't feel that that's the case anymore. I, I feel in a lot of ways this is Dwayne's team again, especially in the fourth quarter. And I think the funny thing is that, is that it really doesn't bother Goran at all. And I think that's one thing fans don't understand. I think they sit there and they look at the analytics and they look at the numbers and say, Goran is better without Dwayne on the floor. And that may be the case. But I feel like personally... Goran doesn't feel like he's not as good a player when Dwayne's on the court with him. What's interesting to me about it, Manny, we're going to get to some of these other teams here in a second that they may play in the playoffs, but what's interesting to me is that uh, you mentioned that, that Goran's okay with it, and I think he is because that's his his personality is to be okay with it. But one of the things Chris and I have talked about on the pod is that, look, Dwayne was not here for a season and a half, and yet he came back and there still was a void there. Like, I mean, even though other guys had, had taken in, I know Dion being hurt plays into this, obviously, and Dwayne probably wouldn't be back if Dion was healthy, right? I mean, the, the Heat right. would, wouldn't have a need at that position. But but it does strike me as interesting that nobody sees that role to the extent that Dwayne was not necessary for that role anymore. And, and I wonder if part of this is, you know, Goran had that role with his national team this summer and played a lot of basketball this summer. It was very successful in that role. But, I mean, there could be a little bit of fatigue that's setting in at this point where you're almost at the point where not only are you okay with it, but you're sort of like, all right, you know what? If somebody else wants to take the reins here, particularly somebody who's done it here before, I'm okay stepping back and saving myself a little bit um, from from what I might have to do if he was not here. So maybe this helps Goran get to the end of the season and be fresher in the playoffs in terms of durability. But I do think it's interesting that, that nobody else sees that role. All right, let's take it forward now, guys, with our fifth part to the playoffs and look at some of these matchups that the Heat could potentially have as they get there. And this is very much in flux now because Miami could still finish really anywhere between, I don't know, anywhere between three and eight at this stage. Um, when you see Indiana, as we're doing this podcast currently in the three spot. So let's just do this rapid fire. I'll switch off between you guys here on, on what you think some of the possibilities would be against these teams. Chris, let's start with, uh, with Toronto. Let's say it's, a, it looks like Toronto is going to be the one seed. Uh, they're playing at a really, really high level right now. What would a one, eight matchup between Miami and Toronto look like? Pain. 
<laughs> I, I think I think Toronto is really good, man. And I know uh, we kind of get fooled by this every year, but I do think that Toronto is the only team right now in the Eastern Conference that so far has demonstrated themselves to be a level above everybody else. Now, the Heat's games with Toronto have been really good. I'd say particularly at Air Canada Center, it's been a lot better against Toronto than I think a lot of teams have managed there. But I just think that right now there is no team in the East that is so much better than everyone else in Toronto is. I just think the Raptors are, are so deep. That second unit is really improved. They've got so many good young, talented, athletic players. When you look at the last matchup in Toronto, the Heat were pretty much neck and neck with the Raptors up until about the third quarter. And that's when the Heat's offense just stopped. Goran went off the floor and they, and they stopped scoring. And then the Raptors just continued to score. And, and I think that's the problem for the Heat in a head-to-head matchup. It's that the Raptors just have more production from their second unit than the Heat does. Dwayne can obviously help change that if he continues to play at this level. But I think in the long run in a seven-game series, I think Toronto's depth would sort of counteract what the Heat's strength is, which is their depth. And Toronto has had the best bench in the league by far. I mean, their five-man lineup off the bench is one of the best lineups in the league, let alone uh, just bench lineups. And what's interesting about that matchup, again, is that Miami's strength appears to be its depth, but, but that's the one place that Toronto trumps them. All right, let's go to Boston. Let's start with you, Manny. Yeah, I, I think the Celtics, uh, this is a series that I think the Heat could actually win. And, and part of that is because the Celtics are not a team that scores a whole bunch. Obviously, when Kyrie's on the floor, they're a much better offensive team. But to me, they're, they're very much built the way the Heat are, which is defense first and points second. And so I think when you look at the head-to-head matchups, the Heat, to me, have a better bench than, than Boston does. The Celtics obviously have a better starting unit. They've got a superstar in Kyrie. The Heat don't have that guy. But I think this is a series that Miami could potentially win. They've already won on, on the floor in Boston. Uh, so to me, of all of all the matchups, whether you look at you know one eight two seven whatever three six, this is the most favorable for Miami. I still would pick the Celtics to win the series, but I think of, of the top three matchups for the Heat, assuming they're six seven or eight, this is the most winnable series for Miami. I agree. I think that the Heat could probably maybe even send the series to seven. I don't think they would win it just because I think Kyrie Irving is so far and away the best player on the court in that series. But there are things in play there, particularly the fact that Boston so heavily relies on young players. I think, you know, obviously Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in in real playoff settings, that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I guess the one wild card is is that Gordon Hayward still hasn't ruled out a return for, for a postseason run. So I don't know what that would look like if they even decide to bring him back, but that could be potentially a wild card. But I do. I agree with Maddie. I think they could be competitive in a series. I still think Boston would win it, though. And Jason Tatum hit the wall a little bit during his rookie year. So you wonder uh, once you get through 82 games and then get into the postseason if maybe uh, you know it's a little bit too much for him in his rookie season. I mean, he's basically become, depending on the night, their second, third, or fourth option on that team. And and their depth is not quite as tested. I think Danny Ainge has done a good job patching that thing together. But but I, if I were the Celtics, I would have gone out and gotten Tyreek Evans uh, at the trade deadline. I think that would have given them a different element off the bench. All right, let's go to the one that I think everybody wants to see. And, uh, and currently, as we do this, they're in the four seed in the Eastern Conference, and they've totally remade their roster the Cavs. Um, <laughs> look, the hype on that series would be pretty tremendous, especially with Dwayne back here in Miami um, and, and what that would look like. That's clearly the series that would end up on ABC. Would you, Chris, would you give the, the Heat any chance in a series against the Cavs? No. 
<laughs> would you care? Would you care to elaborate? Sure. Um, the uh, the the Cleveland Cavaliers have LeBron and the Heat don't. We can start there. But I just think that particularly if because we've seen Cleveland not only dial it up in the postseason, but dial it up from an offensive point of view in the postseason. I, I mean, I'll, I'll always remember the series that they had against those Atlanta teams, and I remember there was like one where Kevin Love was like sixty percent from three. They get to another level when they get into the postseason from an offensive point of view. We know LeBron and Cleveland have made a real habit of really trying to preserve themselves over the course of the regular season. Now it does change a little bit because a lot of that core has changed in terms of the, you know a lot more a lot younger players playing more important roles. So perhaps that changes things a little bit. But we know LeBron is on reserve for the postseason in terms of really storing that energy. And even now, and just in terms of raw numbers, in terms of uh, advanced numbers, however it is you want to look at, they're just a far more potent offensive team than Miami is. And I'm not sure they could stay in games with them. And we've seen, particularly in their building, Miami struggles to compete in, in, in Quick and Loans Arena. I think that Cleveland takes it to another level in the postseason and then Miami would go out, I would say, probably in five games. Yeah, I, I agree with Chris. I think just, just the LeBron factor alone, the fact that we're all sort of sitting here picking at the at the Cavs. We've been doing it all season and, and sort of picking at their flaws. And after the trade, sort of the reinvention of, of the roster and, and the way it looks now, I know they've struggled of late. But playoff LeBron is a different LeBron than the regular season. And I think really when you, when you look back at the matchups between the Heat and Cavs thus far, it came down to the fact that the Heat just didn't have anybody who could stop LeBron when it really mattered. Even on a night where the Cavaliers, I think they shot, I want to say like 38% in that, in that game, that last match, it was horrible night for, for offense. The Heat just couldn't stop LeBron when it mattered. And then on the other end, uh, you have James Johnson who just signed that huge contract and he, you know, he can't finish at the basket and even get a shot off at the end of that game. I think for so many reasons, LeBron would just be sort of this intimidating factor for the Heat. Look, the roster that Cleveland has, uh, I don't think is the best in the East. I think Toronto has the best roster right now. But th- there's no doubt the Cavs have the best player. And, and I think in a playoff series, that's what's going to matter. All right, Manny, we appreciate you joining us. You can follow him as a, at Manny underscore Navarro on Twitter. You can follow Chris at Chris Whittingham. I'm at Ethan J. Skolnick. Again, not only uh, download episodes when you get a chance, but subscribe so you get the next episodes automatically. And we will talk to you soon. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.